We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. If you have one of the red Bibles, it's on page 277. This is the story of when Samuel anoints David. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abdanab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ready and a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came down upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. There are a couple of links between the story that Rachel has just read with us and the marking of the coming of the Magi, the beginning of the season of Epiphany. There's the link of Bethlehem, the place where the episode takes place, although separated by hundreds of years. There is the connection between two kinds of kings. We, we more properly identify the three kings as the Magi, but I, I think that in, in some ways the, the Christian tradition wanted to call them kings because of the comparison with King Herod and to see these kings as kings who were truly called, who truly had good hearts, who were truly on a journey uh, to glorify God versus a false king in King Herod who... Um, had all the right words about his desire to worship, and yet had no, um, had no desire to worship at all. And in fact, was a murderer um, who massacred um, young children. The story 
here in Samuel is that the backdrop is that an old king or the present king is being rejected by God. Saul, who was God's first king to Israel, has now proven himself to be somebody who is now no longer worthy of leading God's people in the way that God desires. And so God calls the prophet Samuel to, to anoint a new king. And he sends him to Bethlehem, a place that resonates with our biblical ears because of its repetition throughout the Old Testament and then profoundly in the New Testament as a location of God's work. We hear about Bethlehem in the ancient story of the book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi. We hear about Bethlehem in the story of Samuel's anointing of David, and we hear about Bethlehem in the birth of Jesus. And another connection, of course, is that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is in the line of King David. And so Bethlehem, again, becomes that location for God's um, unusual and surprising work. And so the prophet goes to Bethlehem. He goes specifically to a family, a family with all kinds of candidates for kingship. And the prophet takes a lot longer than he thought in choosing a king. Because these whole series of honorable and good candidates, at least to the prophet's eye, are not the people that God has anointed. And what God says to um, the prophet Samuel, which is central to this text, and which is central to the story of the Magi and central to our lives, is found in verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height And we're remembering in hearing this that King Saul was a tall man. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One of the beautiful things about the story of the Magi is that their hearts are overtaken by the call of God in their lives. And they journey from afar, committing themselves to one another and committing themselves to that journey because of the deepest heart desire that they have to meet the God of the galaxies, to experience the presence of God on earth, not in the story of their historic religion, but in the story of Israel's worship. And so it is the goodness of their hearts and their openness to the shining star of God in their lives that moves them forward. So Samuel looks at this series of sons and he thinks, oh, this is a great candidate. But he hears, no, this isn't the one I've chosen. He sees the next son and thinks, oh, this, is, this guy's even better than the first. And again, the word comes to him, no, this really isn't the person that I'm choosing. And it goes on and on. Jesse hears that and senses that there is still another son. And so he asked Jesse, do you have one more son? And the father, who no doubt is a little bit exasperated himself, that doesn't necessarily come through in the text, but you can imagine, um, says, yeah, there's, there's, there's one more. And uh, he's out tending the flocks. He's my youngest. He's my little shepherd boy. David. 
And so this prophet gets the sense that David is the one, the one that he hasn't seen yet, the youngest of all of this amazing family, talented family, gifted, called, strong family of leaders. And so he says, we're send for him. We're actually not going to sit down until he comes. And this is the the scripture's way of telling us about the readiness to experience the coming of this new king. And the reason why this story is an epiphany story because we're going to see the appearance of God's chosen person. We're going to, in a surprising way, see the youngest of a family, David, be anointed by the king. It does say that he was an amazing guy. It says that in the text that he was glowing with health And he had fine appearance and handsome features. But the point of God's teaching to Samuel is, it's actually not about that. It's about the heart. It's about the heart of a person. It's about what's central. It's the place where God abides in a person that is the most important. And we're going to hear later on in the scriptures that King David was a man after God's own heart, the only person in the scriptures who is described in that way. David appears, and the Lord comes back into the sequence and the narrative in direct speech and says, Rise and anoint him, Samuel. This is the one. This is my choice. This is the future king of Israel. What's the point? Or what is, are some points for this surprising appearance? What's, what could be the meaning for Israel and for us in this kind of unusual calling of David, who, who the prophet, who was pretty close to God, was pretty sensitive to the Spirit of God, the prophet sort of doesn't really recognize this person, sees a whole bunch of other possible candidates, and yet is taught to see that this unusual candidate, the youngest son, is the one. It's easy to get caught in this story with feeling that the dramatic effect of the story is, in fact, that it's the youngest. And some of you might think to yourself, well, yeah, I I think back to the story of Joseph, and wasn't Joseph the youngest son? Actually, he, he wasn't. Benjamin was the youngest son in Joseph's family. So there's not necessarily a pattern of the youngest being the best. No, I think the dramatic effect of the story is not so much that David was the youngest. It's that David was a shepherd. That's the link in the story. That's the connection in the story that we're meant to start picking up on. And we might think that with the calling of Moses, what was Moses doing? He was with his father-in-law Laban looking after the flocks. And very early on in the Old Testament story, this idea of the shepherd starts to emerge and take over our understanding of what it means to be God's anointed person. And this image does not go away. It only becomes stronger and clearer and more prominent in our understanding of what it means to be a leader in the way of God and in the way of Jesus. 
We choose interesting people to be our political leaders. We choose former drama teachers and boxers. We choose former law school professors. We elect former reality TV show hosts to be our political leaders. There's all kinds of backgrounds that our political leaders have. But when it comes to Israel, the shepherd image is the main image for kingship, for leadership. And what the image of shepherd means is it indicates a guarding, it indicates a feeding, it indicates a nurturing and a protecting on behalf of a leader who is caring for a flock. And the flock means the community or the jurisdiction that that leader is called to lead. And this comes up again in David's story. That if you have to look in David's story for his basic training, David was trained as a shepherd. And later on in the conversation with King Saul, David actually self-identifies. He says, your servant used to keep sheep. Your servant was trained as a shepherd. That was my first job, if you want. And so, so what's going on here in Old Testament theology or the narrative of the Old Testament, the broad story of what God is doing in Israel, what's going on here in this story is that a shepherd and sheep are being introduced to us as a kind of, of an entirely fresh way of thinking about governance and about leadership and about power and about being led and about being followers. And so the standard functions of David as the king of Israel is, is not so much about political savvy not, not so much about the brutal exercise of violent power, but the king's capacity to really love people. And the test in Israel's story is whether the shepherd king is, actually has the best of the people in mind versus the king's purposes in mind. And that's one of our ongoing struggles as you read through God's work in the story of Israel. It's one of the ongoing struggles that we have as political citizens today is this ongoing question, do our leaders actually have the concerns of people in mind? It's so controversial because over time, over history, we have actually realized that that Temptation for a leader not to have the best of people in mind as a real temptation. That happens more than we would like to admit, regardless of our political choices and our political preferences. And so this story has a way of introducing us into contemporary political theory, of actually giving us a way to think about the competence and the calling of our political leaders. Are they able to protect, to feed, to nurture, to relate, to care for the people who they have been called to lead? 
King Saul was rejected by God because he was not leading with the heart of a shepherd. He was leading for his own ego. He was leading for his own reputation. He was over-concerned with his own personal story and his own personal history. And his heart was not sensitive and supple to the presence and the purposes of God or the needs and the longing of the people of Israel. He was a powerful guy. He was a talented guy. He was a powerful warrior. And yet he did not lead like a shepherd. And because he did not lead like a shepherd, he fell out of step with God's purposes for Israel. The prophet Isaiah, who is one of the true literary geniuses in the scriptures, writes this very beautifully and personally about the shepherd with this image. He tends and fleeds his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who are nursing their young. It's a beautiful, beautiful, personal, sensitive picture of leadership in the coming of Israel's Messiah. I've been thinking a lot about Joseph in this recent season, these recent months and weeks. And, and one of the things that I've come to see about Joseph is that although he is identified as a carpenter in the scriptures, that was his occupation. That's what he trained Jesus in humanly. But Joseph is actually a wonderful picture of a shepherd. And the context for his shepherding care comes in the broader context of a king who is not shepherding his community or his nation or his people in the right way, King Herod. King Herod, by all reports, was an insecure person who did everything that he could. He was one of the most violent people in ancient history. And he used that power in order to maintain his kind of rickety power in that time. He had to answer to a lot of other people, the power of Rome, namely, and he was over-concerned and amazingly insecure. It's incredible how our political leaders can come across on television so confident and yet actually at the root of their speech and their choices and their strategies come across as incredibly insecure and needy. Joseph in a dream has Herod's insecurity undressed for him. And in that dream, Joseph is told, take your wife, Mary, and the baby, and get out of town. Because Herod, in his insecurity, is going to become a mass murderer. And so Joseph does it. At the center of Egyptian Christianity, the celebration of Christmas isn't the coming of the shepherds to Bethlehem stable. The center for Egyptian Christians in their ancient practice of the faith is the celebration of the visit of the Holy Family. That's hard for us to think about because that's not the angle that we have been taught to think about. But, but, but for centuries, Egyptian Christians celebrate the coming of Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus to their country, to their land. It's an episode that we often drop off the map and get back into uh, the rest of our church year before actually considering Joseph as a shepherd to Mary. Joseph, who puts his wife and his baby in his arms 
and who cares for them in the way of Isaiah. He looks after his sheep, and he looks after those who have young, and he protects them and feeds them and nurtures them by taking them into Egypt. Because he was encouraged to do so from the heart of a God who is a shepherd. The common name for leader in the church across denominations is the term pastor. It comes from the Latin root of the word shepherd. And it is most regularly regarded that pastors are the shepherds of their community. That they are shepherds in the way of King David and they are shepherds in the way of Jesus, who is the good shepherd. And this year in Knox, the next several weeks, we're actually going to explore this important theme of what it means that God calls us to be shepherds as pastors and as shepherds to one another. This week, in a conversation with a friend of mine who has kind of a unique ministry to enormously influential people in our city, told me a story of a friend of his who came to him pretty recently. They went out for dinner, and this, um, this friend of my friend's, uh, in the middle of the restaurant, just exploded in deep and profound emotion over the trouble he's experienced with a young adult daughter. My friend said that this other person in the middle of the conversation just, just lost it and basically said, you know, my, my, my child's going to this clinic. I could afford to, I could buy the clinic, but somehow I can't buy my daughter's health. And it was, a, it was an encounter of just complete and utter despair of a person who had everything that you could imagine and more, more money than they'll ever be able to spend in a lifetime, even if they started today, starting to give it away, that kind of person. And one of the things that I was reminded of in hearing that story, which when it came to me was, was quite an emotional story, is that everybody needs a shepherd. Everybody needs to have somebody in their lives to listen to their story, to be where they're with them, to protect them, to, to guide them, to accompany them on their journey to sort of stand in the gap for them and to stand right beside them and to do everything in God's power to help them along the way. December 23rd, our family got together with the Carcer and the Hadlow family. This is a long tradition for us. We meet in the same restaurant, always in the 23rd. It's the one thing... um, probably other than Christmas Eve, that we don't have to tell our kids about. They just have it in their calendars year after year, this wonderful family dinner we have together. And I sit right beside my mentor, Sam, who is 92 years old this year. I sit in the same place in the restaurant year after year after year. We've watched his grandchildren grow up, and his daughter and son-in-law are our closest friends in the world. And we do this every year. The 23rd was no different, and... I thanked Sam at the end of the dinner for, for everything that he's done for me. And we got a text on the 25th of December that he had gone into hospital 
And because we were traveling that day, we went up to see him. And that was the last time we saw him. He passed away on Christmas Day. So a little a couple days later, I got the invitation. Would I be give the eulogy at his service? This is a man who I met when I was 16 years old, having lost my dad a few years earlier. And he's a man who stepped into my life, who never knew me except from that first opportunity to meet him at our little church in King City. And as I was thinking about his life, and thinking about, especially in the early years, how I could never really understand my life without his influence. Whether it was work, or choices on education, or financial support for fun projects and good projects, whether it was Sam and Janice's affirmation of Karen as a choice for marriage. Like, it just goes on and on for me. And what I realized as I was preparing that eulogy is that Sam Carcer was a shepherd to me. He stood beside me, unwavering. He listened to my complaints. He endured my immaturities. He challenged some of my worst ideas and notions and plans. He prayed for me, supported me, believed in me, supported me financially in some outlandishly significant ways, and continued to be a friend for over 40 years. The beautiful thing about the shepherd imagery is that whether it leads you to King David or whether it leads you back to Moses or wherever it leads you, where it really ultimately leads us, this powerful, beautiful, and, and, and sometimes hard to connect with imagery because it doesn't, shepherding doesn't really exist anymore in North America, is it actually reminds us that this is who God is. Metaphors and images in Scripture as prominent and powerful as the shepherd are there and they stick with us because they are the way of God's Holy Spirit unraveling the true identity of who the God is at the center of the universe. The God at the center of the universe is not a violent warrior king. The God at the center of the universe is not a king who is insecure and therefore needs to do all kinds of magical and powerful things in order to keep his status intact. The God at the center of the universe, revealed to us through Jesus, is a shepherd who promises to protect people, who promises to feed people, who promises to listen and to accompany and to journey with people. And of course, when Jesus arrives on the scene, all of this expectation of who God is starts to become clearer and clearer and clearer. Who has been a shepherd for you in your life? Who are the people that you are called to befriend and to protect and to care for and to shepherd? 
And what are those times that you remember and that you can see now in present time where God, our shepherd, is doing his work for our church, for your family, for this world? When Jesus went to the cross, he continued in his role as the shepherd. And he took the whole world in his arms and he cradled them and nurtured them, forgave them, saved them. That's the imagery that we're meant to see in terms of who Jesus is. So we're going to take a few weeks in our preaching, Phil and Nick, and we're going to unravel this imagery of the shepherd and of the good shepherd, identified with the God of Israel and with his son Jesus. Open your hearts to the presence of the shepherd in your life and in our church and in the world. This is a gift to us. This is an unusual, unexpected gift that the God, our creator and redeemer, is a shepherd. In the name of the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. We pray, Lord God, for the work of the Holy Spirit this morning to remind us about David, to remind us about Jesus, and to remind us of your presence in our lives and to remind us of our own calling with others. Help us to become more in touch with this image, with this work, with this ministry of the shepherd. And thank you that you are our good shepherd and help us to follow you to trust in you, to be fed by you, to be loved by you. Amen.